I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Tammy Bruce. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, March 31st, 2020. I'm Dave Anthony. We are asked to keep staying at home through April because the coronavirus crisis may keep getting worse. So if we effectively socially distance, like the president has advised, we'll be through with the worst of this in three to four weeks. If we don't, we won't. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. We've got drugs and faster tests approved. And we're working on the protective equipment issue for our healthcare workers as the fight against this virus ramps up. These are tricky days. We're doing things with personal protective equipment. We're making recommendations that, you know, typically we would not have made if we knew that we had infinite supply of personal protective equipment. And I'm Dr. Rebecca Grant. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. If you're already sick of being stuck at home to avoid getting sick, next month won't be any better. Social distancing guidelines remain in place until April 30th. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. It's a war. We're fighting a war. And the worst is yet to come. President Trump told Fox and Friends the peak may be around Easter. That's going to be the highest point, we think. And then it's going to start coming down from there. That will be a day of celebration. He sees June as maybe a time to start recovery. Now in New York... A U.S. Navy hospital ship arrived Monday to treat non-corona patients to help New York City hospitals deal with those seriously ill from the virus. Other temporary hospitals are also being opened up, including one in Central Park. Mayor Bill de Blasio. We need to triple our hospital bed capacity in New York City by May. Now, the U.S. leads the world in coronavirus cases on pace to hit 200,000 in a matter of days. New York has by far more than any other state. So in many ways, New York is just a canary in the coal mine. What you see us going through here, you will see happening all across this country. That's Governor Andrew Cuomo. Cases are rising from California to Michigan to Louisiana, where there's worry hospitals may run out of ventilators this week. We actually, in Arlene's Parish, or the county in which New Orleans is, has the highest per capita incident nationwide by far. Republican Senator Bill Cassidy represents Louisiana and is also a medical doctor. And so we're not emerging as an epicenter. We are a place which is being slammed right now. Now, there's some, maybe some hope. Over the weekend, there seemed to be a little bit of a flattening of the increase in number of cases. But one or two days is not enough to call a trend. So we're watching that to see what happens um, today throughout the rest of the week. Both the president the governor have called for social distancing. Hopefully people have taken that to heart. Hopefully we're flattening the curve. What is it about New Orleans? Is it Mardi Gras? I've heard a lot of talk about that's the reason there's the, the, this big increase there, but that was a month and a half ago. It makes total sense uh, because it usually takes, you know, two to three to four weeks for the virus to kind of start getting recognized. A lot of people flew in. Uh, people have criticized holding Mardi Gras, but I point out at the time that Mardi Gras was held, we were being told that, listen, there's a couple cases in the Pacific Northwest, but otherwise nothing else, don't worry about it. But it just makes sense that it came in, snuck in, and then began to spread. Um, uh, now, I'll also point out the first uh, event to get canceled didn't get canceled until two weeks later. And so it really wasn't on people's radar at that point. But it just spreads, as you know, wherever it spreads, it spreads beneath the radar, and then it just exponentially takes off, which is why we so much encourage people to socially distance. 
Over the weekend, there were reports of some churches in Louisiana and other states that were still holding services. Social distancing still not necessarily being practiced by everybody. Does that concern you? Totally. Um, you know, Scripture um, tells us to obey the, the, our, our secular leaders. So we've been told by the president and the governor not to congregate. And secondly, um, it would be presumptuous upon God's uh, grace if we were to say, listen, we can defy that which we know to be true, that this virus is spread and that it can kill, uh, and that we're going to defy that, go ahead and meet anyway. You know, God gives wisdom, and when he gives wisdom, we're supposed to obey it. And so I don't step in front of a speeding bullet. I don't step in front of a speeding car. I dodge both. Uh, in the same way we should be dodging this virus. So what what should pastors know? What what should they be doing? What is it that's not getting the message across? You know, I, I, I don't quite know. I haven't spoken to any of the particular people. But if you've not seen it yet, I'm a doc. I remember when HIV broke out. And I was in a hospital where there's all kind of AIDS patients. But I got transferred briefly to a hospital that had not yet seen one. So this first patient comes in, he clearly had AIDS. I had seen AIDS, this guy had AIDS, uh, but no one else had seen it. And so they couldn't believe they actually had an AIDS patient. Sometimes you got to see something before you know it happens. On the other hand, if somebody, you know, joins a group of people, maybe they're asymptomatic, but they go and infect another person, and that person they infect is the one who dies, you've seen it. But allow me to make one more point, Dave. There is a way out of this. There is a hope, if you will. About 85% of the people who are infected have no symptoms or minimal symptoms, but they will become immune. Um, There's some people that think folks who are exposed and clear the virus may be immune for as long as three years. That's still being tested, though, right? That's not confirmed. It's not confirmed, but, but there is early evidence to suggest that is the case. Okay. Now, and by the way, that's how the flu works. You get the flu for that season. You don't keep getting the flu that season. You get the flu that season, period, end of story. And if you get the vaccine, and if the vaccine is pretty much like the flu virus that's going to circulate, then that vaccine protects you from getting the flu. And so this is the way these immuno- this is the way immunology works. And the fact that everybody's banking on a vaccine, the va- all the vaccine does is try and mimic what you get when you actually get an infection. A vaccine's actually not better than an infection. It just kind of holds it off. The infection is what really protects you. So if you've cleared the virus, been exposed, cleared the virus, most likely you're immune. And so what I'm pushing is that just like we have immunization registries for children, where all the vaccines you got as a baby and as a young child, um, all the way up until you're in high school, are recorded online in an immunization registry. Taxpayers paid for it. It's HIPAA compliant. Privacy is respected. But that way, if I have to prove that I was vaccinated for hepatitis B, when I go to nursing school or medical school many years later, I go online, pull down my record, hand it to them, boom, they can see that I've been vaccinated. And so we are used to having online registries for immunization. I'm proposing we have an online registry for immunity. So if I've been exposed, I've cleared the virus, I'm immune, I can now work facing the public, not fearing that I will get infected and not infecting other people. If you were one of those people, doctor and senator, if you're one of those people, could you donate blood? Would that help people who are in need, who have the virus? That is being tested right now, Dave, where they are taking the antibodies, these antibodies we're speaking of. You you, you know, you react to the coronavirus, your antibodies are 
uh, kind of a part of your immune system, attack the virus and kill it. They're trying to harvest these and infuse them in patients who are sick. And so that is one of the approaches taken, but that's kind of proof of concept, what I'm describing. People do become immune to the coronavirus, and when they become immune, they can return to normal life. Uh, you, you referenced the flu, and, and you've been a doctor in, in, in HIV, of course. Of, you know, you've been dealing with these things for decades. What is it about the coronavirus? Uh, you must, as, as, as a doctor, be fascinated by this disease. What is it that makes this so contagious and so problematic? You know, the amazing thing is, in the three million years there's been human beings of some sort or another, as best we can tell, this version of the coronavirus has never infected a human being. I mean, in millennia, since Adam and Eve, we are, whatever you describe, we have not had the coronavirus infect a human being. And so if the coronavirus doesn't infect a human being, we don't have that library of immunologic protection that protects us. The president is hoping for maybe a recovery to start in June, social distancing through April. Do you think that's possible? Well, let's hope so. I mean, the more effectively we socially distance, the more we stop this. You can see in Wuhan, uh, um, uh, Wuhan and Hubei province that when they effectively socially distance within two to three weeks, the transmission dramatically fell. Now, if people don't take it seriously, if they go to churches, if they go to university, if they just have COVID-19 parties, as they describe it, um, you're going to spread the virus. Somebody's there is going to have it. They're going to spread it, and then they spread it, spread it, spread it. So if we effectively socially distance, like the president has advised, we'll be through with the worst of this in three to four weeks. If we don't, we won't. There's been a lot of fallout economically, and it's going to get worse as we get into April with rent payments due and bills due and loans due and all kinds of things that people are trying to make ends meet with with all the layoffs. What the Congress did last week, the bill that you voted for, the president signed, how effective do you think money and unemployment insurance and loans can be to help deal with this situation and not make it go on for a year or more? I think it's going to hopefully get us through the rough patch, but until we emerge from the medical crisis, we will not begin to emerge from the economic crisis. Americans haven't gotten their checks yet. Businesses aren't yet able to apply for loans, but there's already talk of another economic stimulus bill. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says there are things they wanted that didn't get included last time. And the Senate's Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, says the odds are more help will be necessary. What does GOP Senator Bill Cassidy think? I've actually thought of a phase four that would be an infrastructure package. We can borrow money at like 0% interest rate. Now is the time to have a multi-year, well thought through, not the Obama shovel ready. you got to do it right now or you lose the money but rather a well-thought-through infrastructure package that would employ working Americans, pull through manu- in construction, pull through manufacturing, which would employ Americans in manufacturing. Both of those would stimulate the service industry. It is ready-made for working Americans. It also would help us with future GDP growth by removing inefficiencies. Now, what I think Nancy and Chuck might be talking about is what they delayed Phase 3 for by five days. They have a wish list of social policies that they want to cram into something, which has nothing to do with recovery, but a lot to do with left-wing 
um, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be great to do this sort of thing? You know, forgiving the debt of the post office is one thing she suggested. Um, uh, giving money to the National Endowment of Arts and Humanities, which ended up having happening, uh, but not as much as she had hoped for. And of course, Pelosi was, um, uh, uh, you know, that had nothing to do with the coronavirus. She just saw the opportunity to get a wish list in. So I don't want this to become a wish list. I wanted to remain focused on coronavirus response. Uh, but that might be hard if Pelosi writes the bill. Uh, lastly, since you're a doctor and there's been a lot of call for, you know, people to to go in and, and have retirees help out and retired medical workers help out. How much are you doing right now while you're not in the Senate dealing with this on the front lines? Yeah, so I'm uh, not so much on the front line. What I am doing is wearing my medical cap and my Senate cap. So, for example, Louisiana's hard hit. And we've had a real shortage of testing material. Now, if you can rapidly test somebody, get them out of the hospital, you don't burn a lot of personal protective equipment when they actually are cleared, but you don't know it yet. So some of the places want to pull the testing out of Louisiana, returning us to a four- to five- to six-day turnaround time. So uh, so we're just, you know, using my off- – I, one, speak the vocabulary of the doctors – but two, speak the vocabulary of the regulators and of the corporate folks. So I'm trying to use that skill to make sure that Louisiana has, for example, the testing, the PPE, the um, uh, ventilators, et cetera. Uh, so far, no one's asked me to go back and practice. I haven't practiced for a while, but in a sense, I'm still taking care of patients, just doing it differently. Senator Bill Cassidy, we appreciate all your uh, time, and uh, good luck with everything, and thanks for being here. Thank you, David. This is Dr. Rebecca Grant with your Fox News commentary coming up. The drugs are approved. Health and Human Services says they accepted 30 million doses of hydroxychloroquine sulfate donated by a division of Novartis and 1 million doses of chloroquine phosphate from Bayer Pharmaceuticals. These, they say, are for use in clinical trials or for patients hospitalized with COVID-19. The FDA has issued an emergency use authorization allowing drugs from this stockpile to be distributed to doctors who can use them on adult patients. President Trump, who has been very vocally hopeful about the drug's usage, highlighted the approvals Monday. Teva Pharmaceuticals is also donating 6 million doses of hydroxychloroquine to U.S. hospitals, six million doses. So the uh, private sector, as you'd say, Steve, it's been amazing what's happened, really amazing. But many doctors have already been using the drugs to treat patients with the virus, specifically under the brand name Plaquenil. I've treated three so far. Dr. Eric Mizrahi practices in Los Angeles, California. I have a lot of friends and family in France, and uh, I've been following the debacle over there with... um, the opposition to Dr. Raoult in Marseille, who confirmed with his 500 patients that this treatment was working. And for me, what I don't understand is when you don't have anything better to offer, what's the harm? You know, everybody's hiding behind studies and this and that. And I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist or anything like that, thinking drug companies are that nefarious that they would, you know, um, stand in the way of, of something that could actually be salutary to patients. But Um, it's hard to imagine any other reason to to not treat with a drug that's been around for uh, for decades that we're using in moderately low doses and that have shown to be so effective. Well, right now the FDA approval is for doctors to use the drugs from the donated stockpile for hospitalized patients. 
I'm not as excited about it being approved for hospital use as, as we should be. It should be blanketly approved. All the primary care physicians should be able to prescribe these drugs. Um, limiting it to hospital patients, by then it's already too late. The drug works best when used early. By the time you're in the hospital, it's too late. And so I, it's, it's another way of, of uh, torpedoing the, the, the study or, or showing that it doesn't work when you, when you uh, slant the sample to the overly sick that won't benefit from the drug. By the time, uh, they did the same thing in France. They only allowed the drug for use in the hospital. And I think that's another way of showing that it doesn't work on patients that are, are, are beyond help. But I'd rather spend pennies on Plaquenil early. And, and um, what's nice is the supply is being ramped up as we speak. It should be available to all those who need it. Um, and so that's where I would like the, the future to go. Um, it's nice to hope on, on magical drugs, but I don't need to swing for the fences. Let's just use what we have now that we know works. The FDA isn't just approving drugs for use to fight the virus. They've also approved more and more private company virus tests, including one from Abbott that claims to get a result in five minutes, a far cry from the three to five day wait period we've been experiencing. And this is needed, as health experts say it is possible more than 100,000 people could die in the U.S. from the virus. Those are some obviously very scary numbers. Dr. Katie Passerati is the medical director for infection prevention at Atrium Health. I think, you know, different predictions have to be taken into account when you're trying to figure out what happens over the next coming weeks. I think most things that I've looked at do show that we're going to hit our peak over towards the middle to end of April and that we all need to be prepared for excess number of patients in the inpatient setting. And then even more importantly, those ICU level patients that require ventilators, making sure we've really thought through how to handle um, many more patients than we have in the past in those areas. I want your thoughts on these drugs, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. It sounds like the FDA is going to allow their use on adult patients. What do we know about the trials so far? Because, you know, some people have been saying we don't know how safe these are. Meanwhile, other doctors seem to be using them with, with great effect. Yeah, I would say we're still learning the efficacy of those particular drugs. Um, you know, the data so far is very limited, so it's hard to know how it will play out in the end. Um, you know, our approach has been to use those drugs as an option, primarily in patients that are on the sicker end of the spectrum, so those sick enough to be admitted to the hospital setting to try to use those resources wisely. But what do those drugs do, right? We know they're anti-malarial drugs, so how does it I guess, attack the virus or help the body's response to the virus? Like, what does it do? Yeah, so it does have some indirect antiviral and anti-inflammatory, you know, calming down that storm of an inflammation that occurs with a viral infection is the thought behind it. Um, I think it's unclear the direct activity on um, viruses. And I, I do think, to get to your point initially, there are side effects from these medications if they're used inappropriately, if they're used at the incorrect doses, if they're used in the wrong combination. So equally as important as how these drugs work is recognizing that they can have side effects um, and that they need to be used wisely. Yeah, I was reading actually like a heart arrhythmia or, or like a rhythm yeah, problem so, with the heart. Yeah, so you have to be very careful that um, there's no interactions with other drugs and that um, ideally there's an EKG check to kind of make sure um, no issues with the heart rhythm that could potentially 
um, develop while on this medication. Doctor, let me get your thoughts briefly on testing. It's been sort of a wild ride there, right? From a CDC test that was questionable in the beginning to this expectation that the private sector ramp up and create a test for you know millions of people. Meanwhile, those, those would need FDA approval anyway. Are, are you of the mind that we should rethink how we test and create tests for novel viruses and diseases in the future? I mean, I think it's been very interesting watching the development of testing processes for COVID-19, you know, quicker than we've ever seen before. We had a PCR-based test for diagnosing this illness. So the virus was kind of identified to its basis level and we, the, you know, companies developed ways to detect it very early on, quicker than we've really ever seen before. And even upon that kind of initial evaluation, um, other types of testing have been developed. So now there's point of care testing, you know, there's larger platforms that can do many, many tests in a day. The issue is really getting that out where it can be used maximally, where it makes a difference. Um, And that's where we're kind of in the stage of making sure people that need it have access to testing and the right type of testing. So you'll hear about, you know, tests for diagnosis. So that's what came out early. And you're starting to hear also about what's called serologic tests that look for evidence of immunity. So the people that have, you know, maybe been infected in the past, and we know that they have now developed immunity, there's utility to both. And, you know, obviously work going on quickly on both fronts. Can I, can I get your thoughts before we go about personal protective equipment, PPEs? I, I spoke with a, a tech startup founder. He started a company called Valence Med, and it, it's a commodities exchange for personal protective gear. He says he has people in China right now trying to find, like scouring factories for, you know, masks, gloves, gowns, all of that. He says the existing supplies are basically stuck, that when governors and politicians all like went on TV and said, we need all of this gear, speculators went in and, and bought it all up, and now they're trying to sell it at five, ten times the, the actual cost. Does that ring true to you? Are you guys struggling to, to get this gear? You know, part of the good use of that personal protective equipment is using healthcare system wisely. So making sure we're redirecting um, patients to where appropriate to virtual methods of care, avoiding everyone overcrowding the emergency rooms. You know, we've done a lot of work post-discharge with um, having a virtual hospital post-discharge. So there's very close follow-up of patients with confirmed coronavirus. So all those play into personal protective equipment. As far as accessibility of personal protective equipment, it does vary from place to place. Um, And obviously it's a very insecure supply chain. So you've heard that many of the types of personal protective equipment are um, produced in China, are produced in Italy, which obviously have their own issues going right now. So that creates an insecure pipeline. And there always are people that will take advantage of that and bump up prices, you know, um, make a profit off that. I I think there is movement, in my opinion, that um, PPE is becoming a bit more accessible. Obviously, it's a huge area of focus. It's something we look at every single day in our facilities and certainly, I'm sure, at every other facility in the country to make sure, you know, appropriately procuring as much personal protective equipment as makes sense for our settings to protect our healthcare workers. I mean, you're an infectious disease specialist, though. How... uh... How horrifying is it to think of people needing to reuse equipment? Yeah, you know, these are, we have these discussions on a daily basis. These are tricky days. We're doing things with personal protective equipment. We're making recommendations that, you know, typically we would not have made if we knew that we had 
infinite supply of personal protective equipment or, you know, and we're having to act in a dearth of data. So we don't know every single detail about how COVID is transmitted, about how, you know, this question of asymptomatic carriage, there are so many open questions that impact clinical care. Um, and we have to kind of, we're in a gray zone as far as how we're dealing with you know, suboptimal situations on both sides. On one side, you have a virus that is not a completely known enemy, so many open questions. On the other side, you know, to protect people, we need that personal protective equipment that may not always be accessible in our current state. So how do we make sure we protect the most people for the longest period of time? These are the decisions we're making every single day, many times a day, doing the best we can with the current situation. Finally, doctor, do you worry that this virus will make a reappearance in the fall? Like, let's say we flatten the curve and by the summertime we're okay. And then October, November, um, this virus comes back. And how do we, how do we prepare for that at at this point, that possibility? Most infectious disease people think that ultimately this virus will be like our seasonal influenza. It'll kind of be in the mix of viruses that we see in a given year. I think, you know, what impact vaccination has on that once a vaccine is available will be very telling. But I think, you know, is it likely we're going to see this particular surge of patients. I think that's unlikely. Will we see this virus again? For sure, it's going to be in the milieu kind of moving forward. But, you know, the issue right now is that no one has immunity, so everyone's susceptible. Obviously, that's rapidly becoming not the case, right? So a certain chunk of the population's protected. And, you know, I think will that will play out in coming, you know, viral seasons. Well, Dr. Katie Passerati, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Download Lauren Green's Lighthouse Faith. We sort of think that God has nothing to say about our pain and suffering. God has nothing to say about our sex life. And the truth is, is that God is very much has spoken to all of these things. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcast.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Dr. Rebecca Grant. What's on your mind? After Americans flatten the curve of coronavirus... It's time to push back on another spike, our increasing economic dependence on China, where the ruling Communist Party cares only about staying in power. The facts are clear. China is not our friend or ally or even a responsible business partner. Right now, between 30 percent and 40 percent of world national economic output is affected by the coronavirus shutdowns. China's President Xi is petrified that after this inferno, the U.S. and others will turn their backs on globalization. In a March 26 letter to the G20, she pledged to increase active pharmaceutical supplies and implore G20 nations to cut tariffs and keep up the unfettered flow of trade. But Xi's words don't match his actions. In the face of this global crisis, China has hunkered down. China tried to pin the origins of the coronavirus on the U.S. Army and then on Italy. These inept Communist Party responses show China is not ready to act with honesty or compassion. Here's a gut check for you. In less than two years, Beijing plans to open the 2022 Winter Olympics under the motto, Joyful Rendezvous Upon Pure Ice and Snow. Revolting, isn't it? It's time for a total reconsideration of China's role in the world and the U.S. economic relationship with China. Here's some priorities. 
bringing drug manufacturing back home to the USA. China's push into generic drug manufacturing has made the U.S. and much of the world far too dependent on China's unregulated producers for common drugs like ibuprofen, doxycycline, and others. Another must-win is blocking Huawei from world domination of 5G through their ridiculous price-cutting scheme. This battle was deemed critical well before coronavirus, and now it simply must be won. The risk of trusting China's Huawei with data capture and vital communications is just too high. The U.S. can also cut back on Chinese imports. Fashion, home gadgets, electronics, oh, I have them. We all have them. But somehow, we may do with a lot less of this stuff from China 10 years ago, and we should again. We can do this, folks. While Washington will have much to consider, it's increasingly clear that coronavirus has ended globalization as we know it, the phase dating from the day China joined the World Trade Organization on December 11, 2001, until December 2019, when China fumbled its response to the Wuhan virus outbreak. China has learned little from 18 years of good treatment by major world economies. Don't even get me started on China's illegal air bases in the South China Sea, their new nuclear weapons, and their forays into Central and South America. As for me, I'm hoping the 2022 Olympics move from Beijing to Norway, and that before the first downhill ski race, the U.S. and allies have flattened the curve of China's rise and intrusion into Western economic life. I'm Dr. Rebecca Grant for Fox News. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Download Fox News Channel's The Five podcast for free. Five of your favorite Fox News personalities discuss current issues in a roundtable discussion. Get it now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.